Hello, and welcome to Scare You to Sleep. I'm your host, Shelby Scott. It's been quite a busy week over here at the Scare Den, folks. A lot of behind-the-scenes things that are going to be very exciting in the upcoming future. The first thing, in effect, you may have already noticed. Longer episodes. For our first full-length episode, we have three stories by the beautiful and talented Whitney Kurtz Ogilvy. Whitney runs the best true crime Facebook group called Last Profiler on the Left, where you can participate in some great true crime storytime Facebook Live events. Now, on to the show. Doctors' offices can gelatinize the spine of even the bravest among us. Something about them is so unsettling. What you need is a doctor who specializes in patient care. Tess was in a rush. She was normally meticulously punctual, but today she'd overslept. Waking up 20 minutes late with her alarm still blaring and the bat wings of a barely remembered nightmare flapping away just out of reach. The dream was something about an abandoned building, she thought. Something ominous. A feeling of something inevitable and terrible. An odd smell. An unlikely mix of dust and antiseptic and something like pennies. She'd woken with a pounding headache and a mouth that felt baked. She arrived at the doctor's office one minute late. She ran upstairs, dropping her thermal mug of coffee at the top. A little of the hot liquid sloshed out of the hole and burned her finger. She swore. She'd wanted to make a decent impression on this doctor. He was top of the heap, supposedly. Didn't even advertise, and you couldn't find him in any of the public directories. You had to be referred to him, and... Even then, he only accepted a handful of new patients a year. Tess hoped he'd be able to help her figure out why she felt so tired all the time. None of the tests so far had shown anything. He's a wizard, her GP, Dr. Rob, had told her. I sent him a few patients a year, just the tough cases like you, he'd said, smiling. I owe him big, he'd said. He did me a huge favor in med school, and I've been trying to repay it ever since. What did he do? Help you cheat on your final exam? Tess had joked. She expected him to laugh, but Dr. Rob had looked at his watch and abruptly cut the appointment short, saying he was running late for his next patient. As she got up to leave, he took her hand and squeezed it. I wish you all the best, Tess take care. It had been an odd encounter, but then Dr. Rob had always struck her like that. The day white overhead bulbs in the wizard's waiting room were so bright they hurt her eyes. The room was sparsely furnished with wooden chairs, upholstered in a hostile-looking orange, and a few small tables with stacks of magazines. An anemic potted plant sat in one corner, its leaves drooping. A sign on the wall said, patient care is our priority. Well, no shit, Tess thought. You are a doctor's office. 
She walked up to the sign-in area and was momentarily startled when the receptionist smiled at her. The woman was so blonde and perfect. Her teeth so toothpaste add white and her skin so poreless that, for a split second, Tess had the strange sense she was looking at a robot or a CGI animation. Or one of those creepy sex dolls owned by men who were probably practicing for their careers as serial killers. Name? The woman's voice was a touch too loud, and Tess had to make a conscious effort not to wince at the sound. Uh, Tess Smith, said Tess. Tess Smith, the robot woman repeated in her almost too loud voice. She accented the syllables oddly. Tess wondered where she was from. Please have a seat. The doctor will see you soon. I'm a new patient, Tess said. You'll need my insurance card, won't you? We have your information, the woman said. Tess shook her head. No, I don't think so. I don't remember sending anything in. The woman didn't reply. Just sat there, smiling her blank, crest-ad smile. Tess hesitated a moment. Okay, then she said, and found a seat next to the potted plant. A fly hummed past her ear. She was surprised to see that she was the only patient in the waiting area. Maybe Wednesday was an off day. Tess flipped through one of the magazines. A vapid women's rag from several years ago. But there was some kind of oily film all over it, and some of the pages were stuck together. So she gave up. She brushed away another fly. Miss Smith, you may come back. Tess looked up to see the owner of the velvety, posh-sounding voice that had just spoken. A handsome, impeccably dressed young man stood in the doorway, to the back where Tess assumed the examination rooms were, holding a clipboard and smiling pleasantly. He seemed overdressed for a physician's assistant or nurse, He wore a perfectly tailored three-piece suit and his shoes looked expensive. He gestured toward the door with his clipboard. Tess noticed a spot of bright red on his snow-white shirt cuff. Oh, she said. You've got a little... something there. She gestured at the spot. The man looked at it. He gave a quick little smile. Oh, yes, he said. Little accident with the straight razor this morning, I'm afraid. My mother says I shouldn't use those things. After you, he said. The young man showed Tess down a long hallway. Much longer than Tess would have expected, given the size the building looked from the outside. The building was oddly quiet. In here, said the man, waving Tess into an open examination room. Please disrobe and put on the gown on the table. The doctor will be in to see you soon. Thanks, Tess said, and there was a little woof of air as the man shut the door. The exam room was small and a bit grubby. The paper runner covering the examination table looked used. The sharps container on the wall looked about to overflow. Tess could see a drop of not-quite-dried blood at the tip of a needle that was poking slightly out of the hole at the top of the container. 
The paper rustled as she sat down on the padded exam table to take off her blouse and bra. The gown was clean, but it smelled of something vaguely familiar and unpleasant. Something she couldn't quite identify. Something organic. Gross, Tess murmured. She was starting to doubt this doctor's rock star reputation. His office looked and smelled like something out of a time capsule, for God's sake. And he needed to call an exterminator, she thought, brushing at a fly that was buzzing drunkenly around her face. This was the third or fourth fly she'd seen since she got here. So he obviously had a bug problem. That could not be sanitary. Tess slid the gown onto her bare arms and reached around to tie the back. She reached into her bag for her phone. Her friends needed to know how weird this place was, but when she touched the little icon for Facebook, she realized she wasn't getting any service. No bars, no internet. Jesus, she thought. Is this place an actual time capsule? Have I stumbled into a pocket dimension? The loss of her phone service made Tess feel oddly unsettled. She wasn't a social media addict, but she liked to know she could reach out if she needed to. There was a sudden, sharp sound, so fast that after a few moments of silence, Tess almost began to doubt what she'd heard. It had sounded like a shriek, a scream, cut off as abruptly as if someone had hit mute. Tess felt a hot little jolt of adrenaline. She listened, but there was only silence. Then a succession of dull thumps, as though someone were moving furniture. She waited, her ears straining into the silence. Maybe it hadn't been what it sounded like. It could have been a chair leg screeching across the hard linoleum floor, or maybe someone had brought their kid and she was playing around, quickly shushed by mom or dad. Tess got up, thinking she'd open the door and glance down the hall just to make sure everything was okay. But then she noticed the small sign by the light switch. To protect other patients' privacy, please keep door closed at all times. She sat back down. Tess brushed at the fly again and tried her phone. Still no service. Damn it. An uncomfortable feeling was rising in her chest. The anxiety demon she'd battled since grade school liked to reach up and slap her any time it got a chance, and it was squeezing her chest hard now. Stop it, she whispered. This is stupid. You're fine. She drew in a deep breath and counted to five. She imagined her therapist's calm voice. In through the nose. One, two, three... Four, five, and out through the mouth. One, two, three, four, five. Don't rush it. She stopped counting. She could just barely hear a woman's voice coming from the same direction as the sound she'd heard a minute ago. She couldn't make out the words, but the tone was unmistakably pleading. The voice of someone in distress, begging. Tess held her breath. A man's voice responded. 
Again, she couldn't hear what he was saying, but his tone was calm. Conciliatory. A different woman's voice joined in after a moment in that same calm, soothing tone. The begging voice continued all through the conversation with calmer voices talking over her. Tess pressed her ear to the wall and squeezed her eyes shut, straining to hear what they were saying. But that just made it harder to hear. The people were obviously not in the adjoining room, but further down the hall. The voices quieted for a moment, and then... Tess jumped back involuntarily from the wall where she'd been trying to eavesdrop. The woman was screaming. Every cell in Tess's body reacted. This was a scream of pure terror, and it reached way down into Tess's body and hit the panic button hard. There were several big thuds, and the calm voice of the man still overlay it all. Tess thought he might have been saying, Just give in. Just give in. But she couldn't be sure. The woman's voice leapt up in a shriek, and then, quiet. Tess stood a moment, her eyes huge and her knuckles pressed against her mouth. Then she grabbed for the door handle. Screw the sign. The door was locked. Tess's heart was going like a rabbit's now. She felt lightheaded. Desperate, she held up her phone and started pacing around the small room, praying for just one bar to call 911 or just a few moments of internet service so she could at least post for help on Facebook. Her foot hit something as she moved to the side of the exam table and she looked down to see a small plastic wastebasket. A few flies had come swirling out when she bumped it with her foot and there was a sudden smell of something sharp. Like pennies. Her stomach lurched as she bent down to look. The basket was filled almost halfway up with discarded latex gloves and paper towels all stained with blood. Some of the blood looked fresh. Then her eyes traveled down to the carpet around the wastebasket. It looked darker than the rest of the carpet. Tess looked at her white shoes. The sides were stained red, and now she could see the large, wet stain, partially covered by the wastebasket in the exam table, which, judging by some dents in the carpet, seemed to have been moved to cover part of the stain. She knew that no one could lose that much blood and survive. Any hopes that she may have just overheard a doctor dealing with a crazy and difficult patient dissolved. She was in trouble. Tess leaned against the wall and squeezed her eyes shut. She tried to breathe. One, two, three, four, five. One, two, three, four. Five. The lightheaded feeling subsided a little. She glanced around the room for something, anything she might use as a weapon. But there was nothing. Then she remembered the can of pepper spray on her keychain. She grabbed for it just as the door swung open. The well-dressed man and the crest ad receptionist stood smiling at her. They were both wearing lab coats spattered with bright red.
Tess fumbled with the safety catch on the pepper spray, but her hands were shaking so badly she dropped it. No, she whispered. Her throat felt drier than dust. Please. No. The man was holding a syringe. Just give in, he said soothingly. The crest-ad woman nodded, still smiling. And as Tess lunged between them toward the door, she felt the hot pinch of a needle as they grabbed her under the arms. Just give in, said the woman. That was an easy one, came a gentle voice from far away. A voice like water, Tess thought, like a slow-moving river. She slipped into the flow of it and was gone. What would you do if you ever saw a monster? I don't mean in the figurative way of saying people can be monsters. I mean a real, live monster. The subjects of our next story didn't know what to do either when they came across something that belongs in the pages of a book or the images on a screen, but never in reality. It was one of those bright all over summer days. Shocking blue sky, cartoony white clouds, greenery so lush it burned itself into the retinas. Sprinklers tossed diamond drops of water into the air. Kids rode their bikes on the sidewalk. You had to shield your eyes to stop them from watering. The brightness of the day. That's part of what made it so jarring. So wrong. Monsters should stick to the shadows. They were driving. Not to anywhere in particular. Just driving around with the top down on Dave's convertible and the radio on classic rock. Feeling good. Later, Kate would remember that the stones painted black came on the radio right before. They stopped at a red light. That one on Charles Street that always takes forever. And they were laughing about something. And then, Dave went quiet. His laughter cut off as if she'd hit the mute button. Kate glanced over at him, puzzled. Then she noticed he was staring, wide-eyed, at something over her shoulder. The look on his face was raw terror. Kate felt her stomach clench. Dave? What? She felt paralyzed, too scared to turn around and follow his gaze. She edged closer to Dave until the seatbelt stopped her. Look, he whispered, his lips barely moving. Kate forced herself to turn her head. An old, dark gray car was idling noisily next to theirs at the light. And in the driver's seat, a monster. How else could she say it? Everything about the figure behind the wheel tripped an ancient, primal fear switch in her brain. He was just... wrong. 
Nothing about him seemed proportional to anything else, as though someone had put him together from a grab bag of dolls and mannequins. The eyes were huge, shaped like a human's, but sized for a much larger head. They were the ice blue of a wolf's, the pupils tiny pinpricks. The figure's mouth was a straight, lipless line, stretching impossibly wide across a gaunt face. It looked as though he could have unhinged his jaw to swallow Kate whole. The nose was small and flat, reptilian. His skin was flawless, like pearl-white porcelain. One skeletal hand gripped the steering wheel. The other was out of sight. Glossy black hair fell around his oddly formed shoulders. He appeared to be shirtless, but most disturbing of all was his absolute stillness. There was nothing of the normal, casual movement of an idle human body about him. No facial expressions, no head movement. He didn't even seem to be breathing. Kate stared. Could he be a burn victim? No. She had worked as a candy striper in a hospital in college, and she'd seen people with horrible burn scars. He didn't look like them at all. His skin was too perfect and his features too precise. Could it be a mask? A costume? A dummy? A hoax? She wanted it to be, but she knew it wasn't. This creature was starkly, horribly real. As was the choking heaviness that began to engulf her as she watched him. As though his spirit had its claws around her throat. And then with a slow awkwardness like stop-motion animation. The terrible face turned to look at her. Kate jerked her face away and stared at the dashboard, but she could feel those flat, glacial eyes watching her. Sense that preternatural stillness. Hostility radiated from him. The certainty of his hatred hit in a sickening wave, and cold sweat slicked her body. Mick Jagger sang, and she could feel those eyes on her. Dave, she whispered, in a voice like a baked desert floor. It's okay, it's okay, he said, his hoarse voice betraying that it was, in fact, many miles from okay. Maybe it's a birth defect, Kate said. Yeah, Dave said. I'm sure that's it. We shouldn't stare. Neither of them believed it. Kate willed the light to change, but the damn thing seemed stuck on red. She looked around, frantic. There were no other cars at the light, and the only other people around were a gaggle of kids hanging out in somebody's yard halfway down the street. She kept her eyes on the dashboard, her fingernails digging into her thighs. 
Dave's knuckles were white on the steering wheel. She sensed it rather than saw it. A flash of movement just outside her peripheral vision. She snapped her head around and screamed. The monster faced them, pressing his bony hands against his driver's side window as if trying to claw his way out. His face was frozen in a rictus of mock laughter, his huge, grinning mouth revealing small, perfect teeth. And again, he was absolutely still. Dave floored it through the red light and didn't stop driving for miles. They stayed up all night that night, every light in the house blazing, in dread of seeing that face at the window. Months later, Kate would realize that their friendship started crumbling the day after they saw the monster. They were fine, and then they weren't. Dave became obsessed with figuring out what it was, staying up all night on the internet, making notes, reading about myths and cryptids and emailing experts, waking her up in the middle of the night to spin theories. Kate just wanted to forget it ever happened. The monster was haunting her dreams. It was like a nasty joke. Just when she'd managed to put him out of her mind for a while, she'd wake wet with sweat and panting. Those pale blue eyes like ice, slowly melting away as she shook off the dream. A few times she woke on the floor. Dave's worried face peering down at her from the bed. And one night, she woke up standing at the front door, her hand on the knob as if she'd been about to turn it. There was a feeling of something urgent she needed to do, something she'd left unfinished, but she couldn't figure out what it was. The next morning, as she got ready for work, she had the unsettling feeling that the face she saw in the mirror belonged to someone else. Her eyes were the eyes of a stranger, and they were watching her, studying her. When she went out into the living room, she found Dave back at the computer, searching for monsters appearing in dreams. Are you going to work? she asked. Hmm? He didn't look up. When Kate got home that night, he was still at the computer in his pajamas, the ashtray overflowing on the desk by the mouse pad. He was reading an article called Dream Manipulation, Supernatural Beings Wiki. Kate blew up. This is your fault. You're keeping this thing in our lives, she shouted. I'm trying to understand it, Kate, Dave shouted back. I don't want to understand it. I want to move on with my life, and you keep inviting it back in. Kate collapsed into a chair, her head in her hands. Can't we please forget we ever saw this thing? Please, Dave. Dave was quiet a moment. I can't, he said. 
Don't you see? It's still coming after us. On the day Kate moved out, Dave helped her load the last box into her car and gave her a chilly but civil hug goodbye. Be careful, Kate, he said, before disappearing back inside. Kate was fumbling with her keys when she heard a loud motor start up down the street. Get a muffler, asshole, she muttered, looking up to glare at the offender. The old gray car came sailing down the street as if in slow motion. She heard music, and she felt the dread hit her like a splash of ice water. She didn't want to look, but she looked anyway, and there he was, in the driver's seat. The window rolled down, and one long-fingered hand raised in greeting as the car drew closer. The wolf eyes met hers and held them, and Kate noted with a sort of dazed interest that her legs seemed to be carrying her into the road. It was amazing how blue his eyes were, she thought, and how, even at this distance, she could see the tiny threads of silvery white hair that started at the pupil and continued outward like spokes on a wheel. Each pale blue iris had a rim of darker blue. She hadn't noticed this before, but he didn't have any eyelash. Dave's frantic voice jarred her back to her body. She was standing in the middle of the road. The gray car had stopped a millimeter from her legs, and it was idling there, sending puffs of exhaust into the cool fall air. Run! You have to run! Dave was leaning out the upstairs window of the house, his face paper white. I can't, she whispered. The figure at the wheel was sitting totally motionless, watching her. The eye snatched her again. In stop motion, the monster raised one thin finger to the side of his nose, tapping it twice. The corners of his lipless mouth turned up just a fraction in a sick mockery of a smile. Then the car backed up a few feet, and carefully, almost delicately, maneuvered past Kate and down the street. She watched it go. She knew it would be back. Kate sat down in the street and focused on her ragged breath. In and out. In. As Dave raced down the front steps toward her, it was all she could think of to do. Our last story of the night is horrifyingly true. This is something that actually happened to Whitney years ago. Take it as a cautionary tale. Do not go into the woods alone at night. It was the summer before my senior year in college. My little brother, always interested in military stuff, had gotten a pair of night vision goggles for his birthday, 
and he'd left them at my apartment and decided to go try out the goggles at a wooded hiking area and nature preserve nearby. In retrospect, this seems like a very stupid idea. Since I was all by myself and female, but I was young and stupid and I got myself all excited at the possibility of seeing deer and other woodland creatures in their natural nighttime habitat. I was familiar with these woods. My best friend and I had hiked there at night before and we'd never run into anyone else. Our area is mostly rural and pretty safe, so I didn't anticipate any trouble. I parked in the little sparsely lit parking area, ignored the sign that read, Park closes at 10, and entered the woods, night vision goggles in hand. It was a half moon that night, and that was the only light that filtered down through the canopy of trees. It was pretty dark, and I didn't want to put on the goggles until I'd found a place to sit down. So I lit my way with a mini mag light on my keychain. A couple of times, I thought I heard a little rustling in the woods, a fair distance away. But it was nothing out of the ordinary, and I put it down to animal activity. Hopefully the deer I'd come hoping to see. After I'd hiked in a fair distance, I found a fallen log to sit on and put on the goggles. I don't know if you've ever used night vision goggles before, but the effect is impressive. They can turn near pitch darkness into bright as day. Everything appears in shades of green, but quite bright and clear. For a while, I had a blast looking around for my fallen log vantage point. Some little creatures, maybe chipmunks, played around in the leaves nearby and a big owl blinked its lamp-like eyes at me. No deer, though, and I started to think that maybe they wouldn't be likely to come anywhere near me if I sat right out in the open on a log. So I decided to find a place where I could be a little more hidden. I made my way a little deeper into the woods and finally found a huge tree, perfect for climbing. I've always loved climbing trees, so it was nothing for me to hoist myself up a few branches and settle in to wait for my deer. I didn't get to see any. What I did see lit up in bright night vision green after about ten minutes of waiting was this. A man, dressed head to toe in dark colored clothing, making his way stealthily through the woods. He was coming from the same direction I'd come and was clearly trying to stay hidden. Moving from tree to tree and glancing around carefully before moving on again. It looked very much like he was looking for someone. It took me a few moments to notice that he was carrying something. And when I saw what it was... The hairs on the back of my neck stood up. He had a knife, a big one, and he was gripping it as if he expected to use it in the very near future. It wasn't deer hunting season, and this was a nature preserve where hunting of any kind was prohibited. And at any rate, the guy was alone and not dressed like a hunter, and very few hunters kill their prey with knives. I was suddenly horribly aware of my situation. 
a young woman alone, weaponless, in the middle of the woods at night. This was the 90s, so no cell phones, and even if I had had one, I wouldn't have felt safe using it lest I draw his attention. I didn't know how he was able to see so well in the dark. I guess his eyes had just adjusted. And I was terrified he would look up and see me. I sat there, afraid to move, afraid to breathe, and watched him as he continued his methodical and stealthy process of scanning the forest for who or whatever the hell he was stalking. I scanned around but couldn't see anyone else even from my high vantage point. And the sickening thought struck me that he might be looking for me. I remembered the rustling noises I had heard in the woods when I first arrived. And then I thought back further and remembered something else. A white car that had followed too close behind me for most of my drive to the nature preserve. I'd been annoyed and a little freaked out at the time, but when I'd turned into the nature preserve parking area, the white car had passed me and driven on its way, and I hadn't thought anything more of it. Now, I wondered, horrified, if this was the driver of that car, if he'd circled back and seen my parked car, alone in the lot, if he'd come in after me. I sat paralyzed, and watched the man stalk from tree to tree, scanning the forest. There was a heart-stopping moment when he paused right underneath my tree, and I was sure he was going to look up and find me, but he didn't. After a long while, he seemed to give up on whatever plan he had in mind. I heard him say fuck it, and he started heading back in the direction he'd come, the direction of the parking area. I stayed in the tree, wet with sweat and crying, until the sun came up a few hours later. Then I climbed down and, still terrified, gripping the little can of pepper spray on my keychain, I made my way as fast as I could to the parking lot. The man had been there. My windshield had been smashed with a rock and someone had scraped all down the sides of the car with something sharp. Presumably, a giant knife that I'm lucky didn't end up in my chest. I'm pretty sure I owe my life to those night vision goggles that let me see him before he saw me. I never hiked alone again after that, and I've wondered many times if the man ever managed to catch some other prey. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed having double the episode and triple the stories. Remember, you can send in your stories, both fiction and nonfiction, to me at scareyoutosleep at gmail.com. I have so many Patreon shoutouts to do. I had an outpouring of support from this amazing community. Because of my supporters, I'm setting up a P.O. box so I can get these stickers and letters out to my $5 and $10 supporters. Here it goes. Thank you, Abby Stuckless, Angie Scott, Brandon Justice, Chelsea Berryman, Derek Dunn, Emily Kolb, 
Heather Highsmith, and Karen McEncheese Music. You guys are all amazing. I appreciate all of your support. Remember to follow me on all the usual social media on Twitter and Instagram at Scare You to Sleep. We have a great Facebook page to join where you can talk all things scary. There's a group and a page. The page has the link to the group where me or one of my mods has to approve you so we can keep an eye out for creeps. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts as well. It really helps me out. See you next week, my lovelies. Now, go get some sleep. Sweet dreams.